0: Well, today is the day that we call Good Friday. And it is the day that we look back and remember Jesus' death on the cross so many, many years ago. And John chapter 19 is the account of the only apostle who was an actual eyewitness to the events that unfolded on Calvary on that first Good Friday. And in this inspired account, we see that Jesus' death was no accident It was not a victory for Satan and the forces of evil, but in fact, the events of that first Good Friday were a direct fulfillment, a perfect fulfillment of a plan devised in the mind of God in eternity past and carried out here on earth nearly 20 centuries ago. Now, the events of that day are important for you and for me, for every person living today, because it was on that day that the full price for sin was paid. It was there on that cross that the Lord Jesus purchased the priceless gift of eternal life. And it is a gift that is available by faith for anyone who's willing to receive it. It's a free gift available for all. And so as we think about the events of this first day, what we want to see first in John's account is this, and that is number one, the condemnation of our Savior, the condemnation of of our Savior. Now chapter 19 we read this starting at verse 1 it says, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. And what we're going to find out is Jesus' sufferings began actually early on that day before he went to the cross. And so in verse 14 we read there that it was the day of preparation. And the day is the Friday of Passion Week. If you remember, we mentioned on Palm Sunday last Sunday that that was the beginning of Passion Week. It begins with Palm Sunday and goes through really to Resurrection Sunday, the following Sunday. So now we're at Friday, Good Friday, which in the Jewish calendar at that time was the day of preparation, the day to prepare for the Passover. Now, the night before, the Lord Jesus had celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. It was that night that Judas betrayed him. He was arrested and he was tried by the Jewish leaders in the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. And in verse 14, we read that at this point, it is about the sixth hour. Now, this is Roman time. And in Roman time, the sixth hour is six o'clock in the morning. And so Jesus' sufferings again began very early in that day. And going back to chapter 19, verse 1, we read, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And so this punishment was a Roman punishment. It was designed as the half death. And the reason for this is that many victims did not survive this Roman scourging. And it was designed to force a confession out of someone they believed was a guilty party. And they wanted to force this person to confess to their crime. But it's interesting that in Jesus' scourging, he said nothing. He didn't speak at all. Why is that? Because he had nothing to confess. He had committed no crime, and he had committed no sin. And so he was scourged as an innocent man, and we know this. We know that he was and is the sinless Son of God. And he went to the cross as an innocent man. And the Lord Jesus suffered this painful treatment In the will of God, this was not an accident, this was not any kind of a coincidence, but it was actually planned for by God. Isaiah 53 says this, He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And those stripes are the wounds that were inflicted in that Roman scourging. And these are part of Jesus' sufferings for us on the day that he died and died on the cross. So as you think about the Roman scourging that Jesus endured, this was for you and for me. Think about that. That's some of the sufferings that he endured. And along with these physical sufferings came the pain of public humiliation. Chapter 19, verse 2. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps on the face. And so he was mocked, he was beaten, he was abused, he was insulted. All these things. And through it all, the Lord Jesus patiently endured every bit of this this mistreatment. Peter said this in 1 Peter 2, This finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And he's talking to believers who are suffering for their faith for no good reason. People who are suffering simply because, people who are being persecuted simply because they are saying that they believe in Jesus Christ. This happens today around the world and it's starting to happen here in this country as well. So Peter says, For what credit is it there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. And today, Christians are being called to suffer for their faith around the world, and as we mentioned, even here at home as well. Should this happen, look to Jesus and look to his example. He was cruelly mistreated, yet he bore it patiently, trusting God for the outcome. Don't strike back. Don't take revenge. Trust in God and he will provide and he will protect. Well, Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor in Jerusalem and he presided over the final phase of Jesus' Roman trial. Jesus had Jewish trials in the Jewish Sanhedrin, their Supreme Court, and he also had Roman trials. And Pilate presided over the final phase of the three phases of these Roman trials. And so he gives his verdict in no uncertain terms. Chapter 19, verse 6 Pilate speaking, So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. That's what the Jewish leaders wanted. That's what the Sanhedrin wanted. They wanted Jesus crucified. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And so Pilate gave his verdict Jesus was innocent. He was a man who committed no crime, no sin that he could discover. And he told this to the Jewish leaders. And he said, crucify him yourself. But the Jews said, verse 7, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And that was a true statement that the Lord Jesus made. He claimed to be the Son of God because he is the Son of God. But the Jews called it, And for that reason, they wanted to have him crucified. Well, Pilate again was convinced of Jesus' innocence. And down in verse 12, we read this. Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king, like the Lord Jesus, opposes Caesar. And so, Pilate is trying to convince the mob to set him free, but it's not, not working. The mob wants the Lord Jesus to be crucified. And Pilate knew what was right. He knew that Jesus was an innocent man. He knew that he had committed no crime. He had broken no law. As far as he could tell, he had committed no sin. He's the sinless son of God. Pilate knew this. And yet, at the same time, he was under pressure from the Jews to compromise and do what was wrong. He was under pressure to execute an innocent man. If he didn't do this, the Jews could bring political games into the picture and cause trouble for Pilate with Caesar. Pilate reported directly to the emperor, and for Pilate to have trouble with the emperor meant at least real trouble, and maybe it could be a life-threatening situation for him. So Pilate was a man who was in a tight spot. And he was under pressure to compromise, And that is eventually what he did. And so in verse 16, we read this. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Pilate knew what was right, but under pressure, he did what was wrong. And that is a picture of what we see in Proverbs 29. The fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man brings a snare. Now, a snare is like a trap where you're tangled up and you can't escape. And when a person is controlled or motivated by the fear of what others will say or do, it's like they're in a trap. They can't escape. They have to try to do what will please the crowd. So the fear of man is like a trap. It's a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. And so the fear of man is a trap that soon becomes impossible to escape. But the one who does what is right and trusts in the Lord, the Bible gives this promise, he shall be safe. God will keep that person safe. The one who does what is right and trusts in God has nothing to fear. So Pilate's tragic decision is a lesson to all of us. Today, as in every time in history, believers have been under pressure to compromise our beliefs in various kinds of ways. And when the pressure is on, the question is, what will we do? Will we compromise? Will we go with the crowd? Will we do what is wrong to avoid the wrath of the crowd? Or will we do what is right and trust God? Do what is right and trust God to protect. He's promised us that he will. So we have the condemnation of our Savior and then the crucifixion of our Savior. And everything about Jesus' death on the cross was planned with precision by the Father to bring about our salvation and to fulfill his perfect plan. And so we think about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, and the first thing we see is the place of the cross, the place where he died, the actual location. And this location is important. Take a look at verse 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out. This is not just out of the place where Pilate was, but it was out of the city, and that's important because Jesus died not as a criminal, He didn't die as the victim of a mob. He didn't die as some kind of political mistake. But he died as a sin offering. And the Old Testament law had requirements concerning the sin offering. In fact, in Hebrews 13, we read this, and it applies the Old Testament law of the sin offering to the Lord Jesus because he died as a sin offering. Hebrews 13 says this, The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin so these are animals that are sin offerings they're burned outside the camp therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood that he might save us that he might cleanse away our sins by his own blood suffered outside the gate and so again we see here that Jesus went out And it was important that he go outside the gates of Jerusalem, outside of the city. I have an interesting book on my shelf written by an English military officer who did a very careful survey of Jerusalem locating or looking to locate the place where Jesus was crucified. And I'm convinced that the Bible is true, of course, that Jesus died outside of the city gates because he died not as a criminal, not as a victim, not as a mistake, but he died as a sin offering, the one who died to pay the price for our sins. All those sin offerings of the Old Testament were pictures pointing forward to the Lord Jesus who would die as our sin offering. He also died as a curse. He died as a curse. Now this is also interesting, and he had to die as a curse in order to pay the price for our sins. That sounds unusual, but it is what the Bible says. And so he went out bearing his own cross, to so the place called the place of a skull which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And so we have the translation there Golgotha. You might have heard of Calvary. That's the Latin name for Golgotha. And sometimes we call it Calvary. Sometimes Golgotha, it's the same. It's the same place and it's a my preference of the different locations there's a couple of choices that people have come up with is a place known as Gordon's Calvary which is kind of a bare rocky hill outside of jerusalem and on one side there are these little small caves that look like two eyes and actually gordon's calvary looks kind of like a skull and it's very near to the garden tomb so everything really looks very much like what you would find in the bible account and so he went to calvary he went to golgotha the place of the skull now he was crucified and jesus had to die on the cross there are different ways that the Jews could have executed the Lord Jesus. They could have stoned him to death. They did that with Stephen, if you remember, in the book of Acts. He was stoned. And others tried to stone the Lord Jesus, but they didn't succeed in doing that. They could have maybe hanged him or done something else to him, but he had to die on a cross because he had to die as our Savior, not just as a victim or as a criminal, but as our Savior. He had to die on the cross in no other way. Galatians 3 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. On the cross, Jesus became a curse for us. He set us free from the curse or the the punishment of the law. Think about the law. Think about the Ten Commandments. Think about the 613 commandments. If you read those, it's a list of 613 things that we've done wrong. That's a long list. Maybe more than 613 with the Ten Commandments. That's a lot of things. And so the curse of the law is the penalty that the law imposes for anybody who breaks the law. So the Lord Jesus became a curse for us, and he saved us from that punishment for sin. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, if you remember, there was darkness on that day when Jesus died on the cross from noon until three o'clock. And it was during that time that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was at that time that the Lord Jesus became sin for us. He took our sins upon himself, and God the Father could not look on that sin, and so he turned away. And for that instant in time, the Father forsook the Son. And in doing that, the Lord Jesus paid the price for our sins. And so he died on a cross, and he died on that cross because he died as a curse to free us from the penalty of sin. And then also the plan of the cross. Now, every aspect of Jesus' death on the cross was planned by God. He was crucified with criminals, although he was an innocent man. Take a look at verse 18. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. So there's a very vivid picture, and we've seen paintings, drawings, pictures of this with three crosses, and the Lord Jesus in the center. The other two were criminals, we read that in another place, and they were going to be, whatever they did was serious, because they were going to be executed for their crimes. In Isaiah, we have the prediction of this. Isaiah 53 says, his grave was assigned with wicked men. And so the Lord Jesus was sentenced to a criminal's death, although he did not die as a criminal. He died as the sinless Son of God, he died as our sinless Savior. He died as an innocent man, but he was crucified with criminals. He was also condemned in a series, and there were six different trials that began late at night. Six different trials and ended early in the morning at Pilate's uh, governor's quarters there. And we read this in Isaiah 53, the prediction of these illegal and unjust trials. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people? And so by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. The Lord Jesus was condemned, not through a legal process, but through an illegal process, illegal trials, mistrials, really, that were conducted, and the Lord Jesus was illegally condemned to be executed. All this predicted in the plan of God. And then also, His crucifixion was predicted. There's a vivid picture of it in Psalm 22, written before crucifixion was really invented or widely used. And yet you have a vivid picture of the cross there. And in Psalm 22, written a thousand years ahead of the cross by David, he said this, he said, They pierced my hands and my feet. Imagine that. All predicted a thousand years ahead of time. God did that. And also the humiliation of the cross. Take a look at verse 24. Verse 23. The soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. And so the Lord Jesus had a very special garment that he wore. It wasn't stitched together of smaller pieces of material. I had a friend who had a pair of jeans and he started patching them and eventually they were entirely made of patches. It was There were no more pants. It was all patches and they were these patch pants. Well this was not what these were but it was somehow woven without a seam. It was a very expensive and special garment and they decided not to tear it up, not to divide it, but to uh, try to have a game to gamble for it and see who would get to keep it. Again, this was predicted as well in Psalm 22. And it's the fulfillment is talked about here. It says, They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so as the soldiers are gambling for Jesus' garments, they are fulfilling a prediction made by David 10 centuries before, fulfilling some of the details of God's plan for Jesus the cross. And so the events of that Good Friday, if you were to to be there, it would seem like a very chaotic scene. For part of the time it appears that the Lord Jesus will be set free, and then for part of the time it seems like he's going to be executed or maybe killed by the mob, and then he ends up on the cross and none of this looks like it could possibly have been planned. And yet in the mind of God before time began the Bible says the Lord Jesus was the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world and so the Lord Jesus his plan to go to the cross all made certain in the mind of God before time began and fulfilled prophecy is God's stamp of authenticity on his word I was watching some YouTubes by a guy who repairs classic watches and one of the first things you want to find out before you repair what looks like a Rolex is to make sure it really is a Rolex and so there's some ways to figure that out And there are ways to figure out that the Word of God is not like any other book. It is a book that comes from God. It is the only book in the world that predicts future events with accuracy. People are trying to figure out what their favorite baseball team is going to do, trying to predict. Those predictions don't always work out. But when God gives us a prediction in His world, and He has many of them in His Word, they always come to pass. And so we can believe every word of the Bible. And so as we think of God's plan for Good Friday, it's part of his all-inclusive plan. Think of all the things that are in the plan of God. First of all, he has a plan for the world, and God has a plan for the entire world and all the people in it. He also has a plan for the church, and he's unfolding that plan today as he builds his church around the world. He has a plan for Israel, and Israel, if you think about Israel, all the troubles and trials they go through, you wonder, how does that nation survive? Well, Israel is God's chosen people, and he will not allow that nation to be destroyed. He has a plan for Israel. He also has a plan for every individual. He has a plan for us as believers, a plan for each one of us, and he has a plan for all things. And so God's plan is all-inclusive. I heard a man on the radio recently, he was lamenting some of the troubling things taking place in this country, and he said, if only I knew there was a plan, I could live with it. And I said to myself, there is a plan. God has the plan, and we can sum it up in two words. We win. Well, he didn't apparently know that. And so he's really stressing over all the problems that are going on, and there are a lot of them. But the good news is there is a plan. He can explain it in two words. We win. God wins, and we're on the winning side, and that's the good news. And so again, the events of Good Friday, predicted and fulfilled with precision, is proof that God has a plan for you, for me, and for all things. And then also we have the compassion of the cross. Now, Bible students have discovered seven, what are called the seven sayings of the cross. And there are seven things that the Lord Jesus has said from the cross. We've talked about them here at other times. And some of these, in fact, when he spoke, he spoke words of forgiveness. For example, when he was being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. These soldiers just were doing a job. They had executed many criminals, and they thought that the Lord Jesus was another one of them. They had no idea what they were doing, and Jesus asked the Father to forgive them. Words from the cross, words of forgiveness. And then also he spoke words of hope. Remember the Lord Jesus was crucified between two criminals. Imagine that, three individuals who knew they might not live out that day. And crucifixion was the cruelest, most brutal form of execution ever devised. And the victim died, sometimes over a period of hours, sometimes over a period of days, from blood loss, shock, exposure, dehydration, all these different things. Terrible way to die. And so there are the three of them. One is mocking him. The other is correcting his other criminal. He says, don't you fear God? Don't you realize all of us are going to die today? Do you think you're ready? And then he says to the Lord Jesus, remember me, when you come into your kingdom. Just a very simple request that says a lot. First of all, he knew that this man next to him on that cross was no ordinary man, certainly no criminal, but that he was the Messiah, the coming King of Israel, the Savior. And he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He understood that this man who was about to die would rise again and return and reign as king. He knew all of this. And he expressed it in those few words. And so he had total faith in the Lord Jesus, who he was as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the coming King. He expressed that from his cross. And Jesus said what? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. And he was saying today we'll be in heaven, both of us. You'll die today, I'll die today, and we'll be together in heaven. Think of that. And that was Jesus' promise. Words of hope to the dying thief. Words of hope to anyone who trusts in him that heaven is their home. There's no stopping off place. He didn't say, well, we're going to spend a long, long time in a waiting area before we go to heaven. No, directly to paradise. Jesus promised that. Words of hope. And then also, and we see this here in John's gospel, words of compassionate care. And so from the cross, verse 26 Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. That's John, not saying that he's John, but that is John. The disciple whom he loved standing nearby. All the other disciples had fled, but John stayed behind. He was the one who stayed. And what we have here is his personal eyewitness record of the events of Calvary. And he says this, Woman, behold your son. And the Lord Jesus knew on that cross that soon his mother would be not only a widow, but she would be childless. Now in the Old Testament system, children took care of their parents in their old age. And the Lord Jesus was not going to be available to do that, not because he would die and not rise again, but because he would die, rise again, and ascend into heaven. And so the Lord Jesus says to Mary, John will take care of you. And then he says to John, to the disciple, Behold your mother, and look at his obedience. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And so John took care of Mary. She came to John's house to live with him and his family, and he cared for her for the rest of his life, rest of her life. And so he obeyed the Lord Jesus, obeyed that all-important command. And so the Lord Jesus, you see that he obeyed this important command from the Ten Commandments, The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. And what an example the Lord Jesus is to us today. Dying on the cross, concerned for the care of his mother. And certainly for us as children, whatever age, we should be thinking about the care that we can provide for our parents at whatever age they might be. And then we have the victory of the cross. The victory of the cross. Now, the last words of the Lord Jesus from that cross were not a gasp or a whimper, But they were a shout of victory for all to hear. Verse 30, he cries out, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. In another place it says he cried out with a loud voice. Same words, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so the Lord Jesus' death was not an accident. It was not the fulfillment of a murder plot. It was not a mistake. It was not the work of a mob, but it was a victory, and the penalty for sin was paid once and for all, forever. And at the cross, the Lord Jesus purchased not a partial salvation, but a full salvation, and one that's available for free. I think I told you, we've gotten two letters from the same cult group wanting us to join. And they offer, well, what they offer is not so great. We're going to talk about that next week, and there are counterfeits out there and it seems like they're getting busier I mean, writing letters to your pastor and his wife. What's going on here? Well, they're doing this, and people do fall for this. I have a friend who's a brilliant man, and he has fallen for one of these cult teachers, and he was trying to talk me into it. Think about that. Now, that's the third one. I mean, it's happening everywhere. And we'll talk about next week how to uh, protect ourselves against these people handing out spiritual uh, $3 bills, if you will. And so, again, what you find here is the Lord Jesus purchased a salvation that's complete. The salvation these cult groups offer is partial. You know, I like to build, in the wintertime, I like to build maybe an electronic kit. And one of the great, uh, one of the first things you do is you dump out all the parts. And you do it on, I have to comment, I have a couple of uses for cookie sheets that don't involve baking at all. One of them is for doing electronic kits. I like the cookie sheet with the edges on it. So when I dump out all the parts they stay on the cookie sheet. These things are so microscopic if they land on a carpet I don't think you could ever find it again until you stepped on it and then you wouldn't like that. And so you have to find all the parts and then you have to make sure you have all the parts. And so one by one you check them all against the list and you have to have all the parts. And there's nothing more frustrating, especially in these days of a broken supply chain, to find out, oh, there's a part missing. They say, well, we know where it is. It's on a ship, a ship that's not allowed to come into port. So stay tuned. And that's the awful thing. And sometimes people offer, and the cults do this, they offer a salvation that's not complete. One group says, says that we're saved by grace through faith after all we can do. Well, how much is all you can do? You do all you can do and you're ready to fall into bed and somebody says, oh, would you help me? And you do one more thing, right? You never know how much we can do. And so we never know if we've done enough, if we buy into that system. And so the Lord Jesus purchased the only salvation that really saves. The only one where you know for sure that you were saved because he said it's finished. It's a completed salvation. There's nothing that has to be added to it talked to an individual just a few weeks before he died was in a system where you work hard all your life, follow all the rules and find out after you die if you made it. And I said, you know, you could know today. He said, no, not in my system. That's a sin. I'm not allowed to even think about that. I said, oh, and I shared the story of the thief on the cross. He said, no, no, I'm going to do the best I can and wait and see what happens. I said, wow, okay. But that's what in some of these false religions, that's what's done. You get a partial salvation And you have to work to create the rest of it. But Jesus said, it's finished. And he purchased all of it there on the cross. The Bible says it this way. By grace you have been saved. Interesting word there. Means we were saved completely in the past. And we are still saved today. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And so when we trust in Christ, we're saved with a salvation that is complete today, tomorrow, and forever. And that's the good news of Good Friday that on the cross Jesus paid the debt we could never pay the penalty for our every sin and he paid it in full paid it forever and then we have the picture of the cross the picture of the cross now verse 31 we find out again it was the day of preparation this is the day of preparation for the Passover and three times John mentions that it is the day of preparation why three times? what was going on On the day of preparation Well again the Lord Jesus was Crucified outside the city walls of Jerusalem And Jerusalem was a small city really It was called a city but it's small Even today the main part of Jerusalem is not very big And so he was crucified Likely on some kind of a hill What we call Calvary today Very likely within sight of the temple What was going on at the temple? Well at the temple they were slaughtering Passover lambs to be eaten at the Passover that night when the Sabbath began at sunset. And so the Passover lambs are being killed at the temple, and the Lord Jesus, the one who is the Lamb of God, is, going, is being killed, is dying for our sins on Calvary. Now the Lord Jesus, John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Passover lamb was a 3D picture of the Lord Jesus from the Old Testament. And the Passover lamb was instituted in the days of Moses, and he was a picture of what Jesus would do. The lamb had to be slain, had to be a perfect lamb. The blood had to be applied to the doorframe of the house, and anyone who was protected by the blood would be protected from death, from that judgment that brought death. What a picture of the Savior. And so for centuries, Passover lambs were killed and eaten on the Passover, and then the Lord Jesus came, and he was the last and final Passover lamb. And there was one rule for preparing the Passover lamb, and that is that no bones were to be broken. Now you can imagine, of all the thousands of Passover lambs that were killed, some little kid would say, Dad, why can't any bones be broken? And he would say, We don't know. That's the rule. But why? I don't know. And if it was my dad, I would say, Why? And he would say, Because why is a crooked letter. And, so, yeah. and nobody knew the answer as to why no bones could be broken until the day that Jesus died on the cross. And what do we find? Well, they wanted to take the bodies off the crosses before the Sabbath. You can't do anything on the Sabbath. But to do that, all the victims had to be certified as dead. And the soldiers knew how to do that. And one of the things they would do to hasten death is to break the legs of the victims so they couldn't raise themselves up and get a breath. And they would die of asphyxiation. That was one thing they would do. And they came to the Lord Jesus, and they saw that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. And one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And John says this was his testimony, and it is true. Verse 36, these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. Why was it that of all the thousands of Passover lambs, from the days of Moses to the days of Christ, Not one bone could be broken because that was the rule and that was the picture that the Lord Jesus would fulfill. And stop and think about it. The other victims had their legs broken, but the Lord Jesus could not have a bone broken because he died not as a criminal, but as the sinless Son of God, as our Savior. Again, another detail of the cross, a picture of the cross. So in the Passover lamb, we see a picture of the Lord Jesus. Now today, the temple is long gone. The sacrificial system is long gone. And people still celebrate the Passover. And they say at the end, next year in Jerusalem. And we would say the same. We look forward to the day when we will be in Jerusalem with the Lord Jesus and he'll be reigning as king. And so the Christ who died on that cross died as the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. After the Lord Jesus died, no more Passover lambs are needed. He is the ultimate and final Passover lamb. And so the picture of the cross, and we see it here. And then the promise of the cross. Verse 34, there's something else they did. Since they did not break his legs, they did something else. And that is they pierced his side with a spear and blood and water came out. Verse 34. And this was done to fulfill partially another scripture. Verse 37. Another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Who are they, and who is He? Well, He, of course, is the Lord Jesus. Who are they? Well, the Jews. They were responsible for His side being pierced by that spear, proving that He had died. And in order to have a resurrection, Jesus had to die, and it had to be proven that He died. There have been people throughout the years who have said, Jesus never died. He just passed out. They put Him in the tomb. He wiggled out of the grave wrappings. He pushed the stone aside, and He escaped. Well, that did not happen because we have here in public, they prove that Jesus had died. That blood and water sort of mixture is proof that the heart had stopped beating and death had occurred. But something else says they will look on him whom they pierced. This is a promise about the future of Israel. What's going to happen to Israel? Some people say nothing. The church has replaced Israel. God is done with Israel. But the Bible says God has a plan for Israel. And in fact, in the days of the tribulation, which can happen any time right after the rapture, 144,000 Jews will be saved in this tremendous revival in Israel. And they're going to look on the Lord Jesus, and they're going to grieve, and they're going to realize that He is not their enemy, He is their Savior. And there'll be this great revival, and many, many in Israel will believe and be saved. And so God has a plan for Israel. He has a great plan for his chosen people. And if you want to know what time it is on the prophetic clock, just take a look at the minute hand, which is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is God's prophetic time clock. Keep your eyes there. That tells us what's going on in God's prophetic plan. And Israel has a forever place in the plan of God. And then we have the committal of our Savior. Now in his death, the Lord Jesus committed his spirit into the hands of God. And of course, death is a separation of body and spirit, body and soul. The physical part of us separates from the spiritual part. And Jesus died and gave up his spirit, committed it into the hands of God. But his body was committed to the tomb, committed to the grave. And so verse 38, we read this. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. And it's believed that the Lord Jesus weighed about 200 pounds because the spices or the oils that were used would be about one-half Of the person's weight so he could have weighed as much as 200 pounds and so they took the body of Jesus bound it with linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews and so the Lord Jesus now is going to be committed to the tomb now Joseph of Arimathea was a follower of Jesus Christ but he was a secret follower he never wanted it to become known that he was a believer He was a member of the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish court that condemned the Lord Jesus. Imagine what would have happened if word got out that Joseph of Arimathea was a follower of Christ. He was timid and did not allow that information to get out. But now he makes a bold move. He goes directly to Pilate and requests Jesus' body. And doing this, he makes a public, really, profession of his faith in Christ. He says, I'm a believer and I would like to take my master and put him in my brand new tomb. And so that's what he did. And so he's making that public announcement that he is a follower of Christ. And again, we see this planned by God on Isaiah 53. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death. Why was Jesus buried in the brand new tomb of Joseph of Arimathea? First of all, Joseph was a wealthy man. That was predicted. But also, he was buried in that tomb because he was an innocent man. Isaiah says this, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. God would never have allowed Jesus to be buried in the tomb of Joseph if Jesus had ever committed one sin. And so he died as the sinless son of God, the only, the one person in the world who could save us. And then there's a second man, remember Nicodemus? He came secretly to the Lord Jesus, another secret disciple, another secret member, another member of the council kind of hiding his faith. But now, He comes out as well as a follower of Christ. And Joseph and Nicodemus show us that there is hope for the timid Christian. There is hope for the cowardly Christian. And that's good news, that a cowardly Christian can become a bold follower of Christ. And we see that in these men, and we praise them, Lord for it. So if you're intimidated concerning your faith, be bold. Make a stand for Christ and do that, that he might be glorified so of all the 12 apostles, only John was eyewitness to the events on Calvary on that first Good Friday. And here in chapter 9 we have John's first-hand report. We have the condemnation of our Savior. We have the crucifixion of our Savior and the committal of our Savior as he's committed to the tomb that's owned by Joseph of Arimathea. And in these facts we have part 1 and part 2 of our three-part gospel message that Christ died was buried but also that he rose part one and two are fulfilled on good friday part three the resurrection is fulfilled on resurrection sunday we'll celebrate that in a couple of days in this inspired account we see the plan of god again and again you see prophecy fulfilled and we're reminded that god is in control our chaotic world the news is reporting different things they say what's going to happen next and nobody knows but we know this God has a plan. His plan is on time and on target, and we can rest in that. Also, we see the Son of God as our Savior, sacrifice, and substitute. We see the Lord Jesus in all that He is, all that He did for us. And finally, we see the love of God on that first Good Friday. The Bible says this, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. Do you ever wonder, does God really love me? Would He allow this or that and still be a God who loves me? The answer is yes. And if you ever have a doubt, look to the cross, because it's there that God says to the whole world, He loves all of us. He says, I love you. That's what God says. That's right. Father, we thank you for Good Friday and all that it means to us. It was on that day, in that place, Calvary, on the cross, that the Lord Jesus went there for us, willingly, voluntarily, freely, as the one in all history who is qualified to die for our sins and rise again. Thank you for his death, for the penalty that he paid. Thank you for his life that he lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.